welcome to episode 456 of Cinematary. I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with... Grace Winburn. Michael O'Malley. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about movies that we saw this week in part one. And in part two, we will continue our Young Critics Watch Old Movies series with 1962's Harakiri. Um, we will not be performing Harakiri, though. We will continue to do Cinematary after this. It was discussed We'll just and be like that on. first guy in the movie where we're just trying to get money to do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> we'll bring that up at the end when we get to the Patreon portion. We'll just be like, we right. just want your money. We don't we'll really. We'll put out our Venmo's. We, yeah, we're just, we're, just, we're just here to get the money. Um, all right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into it. I, I'll start us off. I have two new releases that I caught. Um, the first one I will talk about is They Clone Tyrone, which is uh, just popped onto. Well, it po- I think it popped on the Netflix the week that uh, Barbie and Oppenheimer came out, which is just a very inopportune time, inopportune time to like come out and try to get, uh, capture attention. Um, but this is by a... I think this is his first feature. Um, I think he's done some shorts, but uh, Jewel Taylor, who wrote and directed this, um, and it stars uh, John Boyega, Tiana Paris, uh, Jamie Foxx, um, and Kiefer Sutherland. And it's it's there very much like riffing off of the black exploitation genre, um, th- uh, movies like that. It, it like even just the look of the film. I probably should have looked it up. I'm gonna. I think it's. I think it is filmed on film. Um, but I hope it is because it, I mean it looks good. It looks. It looks like actual film. I hope it wasn't like some kind of digital filter. But they they try to make it look like it's this black exploitation film from like the 60s and 70s. Like black dynamite. <laughs> Yeah, to a degree. This one's a little bit more serious than Black Dynamite, but also it's just a very funny movie. Um, but uh, it's kind of it, it's it's black exploitation, but like with a side of invasion of the body snatchers or they live. Um, so if you're into that combo, that's what this movie is. Um, but uh, yeah, it takes place. Um, I don't. Uh, I can't remember specifically where it's at in the U.S., but. Uh, it's uh it's in kind of the 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 projects of this of the city um john boyega is kind of a drifter like seems like somewhat drug dealer just kind of uh you know just just wanderer about town um jamie fox is a is a pimp um and tiana paris plays one of um one of his his uh women of the night and uh uh, the first kind of day plays out. John Boyega's character is like going through the day, interacting with people, um, but he like uh, stops and like beats up this guy who's selling drugs and like steals the drugs from him. And the guy's like, "Oh, I'm gonna you know tell uh, whatever the guy's name was that you did this." And he's just like, "I don't really care." Um, and so it catches up to him later in the day. He he goes to visit Jamie Foxx's character to. Um, pick up some money and when he's leaving the the motel where jamie fox is um the guy from the the boss who he's who he stole the drugs from earlier uh finds him and shoots him in his car and you're kind of like oh like this is this is this but then it and in somewhat of like a groundhog day situation he like wakes up uh the next morning um and seems to kind of like be a little bit off but not realize that he's been killed um and through a confluence of different events that you know it's not really worth getting into to kind of take away from the movie they find out that the that the government has been um cloning members of this this projects area in this in this part of town 
um, in a way to, uh, you know, not to get into like the, into the whole logistics of it, because it does kind of get into, I mean, it's, it, I think it's the case with a lot of these types of movies. It does get into kind of funny science and like, you know, uh, it, it gets a little bit lost in the sauce when it comes to like trying to explain all of this stuff, you know, um, it reminds me a little bit of something like a, like a recent, you know, invasion of the body snatchers, uh, uh, movie uh the world's end by edgar wright something like that where you just have like this cloned town that's uh that's all coming after like the john boy the the three main characters of this movie um but the government's like uh, you know covering it up in order to test on the the black people living in this part of town and run tests and um like kind of keep them in line and so a lot of the movie you know then becomes them uprising against this against the government um to to shut all of this stuff down and it it like it it, you know plays on gentrification and a lot of different aspects of you know the the government just not really caring about a lot of black americans or or just you know the the whole the whole thing that point that they're kind of making is that you know they're just these the you know they're just kind of using them as these test subjects and so they have to um rise up against the Kiefer Sutherlands and, uh, <laughs> and, and take them down. Um, but it, it does have like this kind of, you know, like I said, it's a, it's very much like in this black exploitation vein, um, with a little bit of like, they live things like that. Um, it's very funny. Jamie Foxx, this is a good Jamie Foxx role. Like he's really hamming it up, having a good time. John Boyega, you know, He's somebody who this is it seems much more in line with like um, Attack the Block, uh, the movie that kind of got him on you know on the on the radar before he got kind of got stuck in the Star Wars machine. Um, and he he was on Skins too, right? Like when he or was it Skins or was it Misfits? One of those, yeah. He was on like yeah, so, he was on like one so of those. Kind of, kind of, yeah. it, it feels more akin to like the roles he was doing before he got caught in like Star Wars and things like that. Um, but uh he's yeah he's he's really good in the lead role it's very funny tiana paris who is somebody he she, like she's gotten stuck in like the marvel machine now but is a very this seems much more of like she gets these roles that she can like kind of chew on uh this one reminds me of uh, just in terms of like the intensity and like um that she and the kind of charm that she brings of something like Chirac, uh, the Spike Lee movie that she leads like this, like this, this one and in, in Chirac, I think are two of her better roles for sure. Like she's just able to like really create a character. Like she really just has this, um, great personality to her. Um, and seems like she's like given much more freedom to like build a character rather than like just kind of be, you know, person B in some, you know, Marvel television show or movie or something like that. Um, so, I mean, all three leads are really fun. I think that the black exploitation, uh, it works. You have like all of these very like entertaining side characters that they're kind of running into, uh, along the way. Um, a lot of like the sci-fi stuff works like the, the ending scene when like everybody comes together in the neighborhood to like fight out, you know, fight off the government. Um, it's kind of fantastic. And like, I don't think the social commentary is, 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 it's solid. It's not too bad. Um, it's, 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 it's not even really on the level of like stuff that they would do in like Pam Greer movies and things like that, where you would kind of get this, it would like speak to an issue, um, 
that's like that was you know affecting the black community at that time this one definitely like it kind of uh you know it like the government is like working out of these hubs like um you know it, like it has uh one of the entrances to the government uh uh like the space where they're like doing the cloning is like in the church in town ta- in, in that part of town or the convenience store or the liquor store um uh one of them is like in one of the kind of uh uh flop houses like the drug houses um that they end up at um and so it's like these points of contact that are that they're like the government is running in order to kind of keep keep these you know keep the people in the neighborhood kind of you know ch- you know stuck in the neighborhood rather than like going out and and kind of trying to start a new life the tiana paris character talks about how at one point how she you know wanted to become a, a writer and a journalist and wanted to like go work at the washington post and kind of you know be be more than just you know stuck in the same neighborhood anymore but she ended up because of different uh circumstances ended up kind of in the life that she's in now and staying where she she grew up um and you can kind of sense that with the john boyega character too um but yeah i think it's you know it's definitely it's a very assured like confident first feature for jewel taylor like i hope that he's able to um to make more movies um, and, and make movies kind of like this that I mean this one I think it's a little it's it, it it stays a little bit too long it's like it's two hours I think it probably could have been a stronger 90 minute movie I think there, there's a little bit of fat that you can kind of cut out of it um, like I said I think it spends too much t- time like trying to kind of explain the science when you're just kind of like yeah just like have fun like just like like just kind of play with it and like let allow that to to lead to like comedy and action and things like that um but um yeah they clone tyrone it's on netflix it's easily one of the like better looking non like auteur like you know it's not you know non like noah bomback uh uh I'm trying to think of others like, you know, the people like when, when they started like giving out tours, um, you know, money to make uh, movies on Netflix. This one is probably one of the better like non-auteur like where they, you know, they actually gave a lot of money. Like this one looks really nice. It doesn't feel and look like a Netflix movie. It's entertaining and sticks with you, which is new for Netflix movies, I would say. So, um, but yeah, definitely, definitely check it out. It's a fun time. It's a good, uh, it's a good little like, it's a good two hour watch. Is there anything like scary about it or is it just like a fun little comedy? Because it sounds like there is like a little bit. I mean, it's already playing on like the historical precedence of like Tuskegee and like yeah. the government like injecting black Americans and, you know, testing them and then like putting. It, it, it's know, got Ronald a little Reagan bit of like kind of. Yeah, it's got a little bit of body body horror and things like that, but it, I, I wouldn't describe it as like a horror movie. It's more of like a, it's more of like a like a exploitation film or like an action f- sci-fi film. That's why it's much more in line with like They Live or something like that. That's like less scary and more just like kind of sci-fi stuff. Yeah, no, it's not. Yeah, no, it's not. It's fine. No, it's not. It's not a. It's not a super scary movie. Oh, but though, I mean, that's Tuskegee, but Tuskegee and stuff like that's definitely like kind of like what it's getting at. There, like you know. But- it is, yeah, no, and like I said, I think, I think it could have been like the story could have been more streamlined. Like that's something that I like about you know a lot of Pam Greer's movies. Like they they bake that stuff in there, but it's also it feels like a very like streamlined, um, you know, a- the action and stuff of it is paramount over anything. And like this one's not that not a, it steers away from that, but I feel like it kind of gets lost in that and, f- and forgets to like be a fun 
movie sometimes it kind of there's it kind of gets to a point where it drags a little bit and i'm like yeah like i think it would have been better as like a 90 minute movie where you could have just kind of like got into the science of it and you could have still made like this like the kind of social cause you know the social points that you want to make without like spending i think you know spending too long kind of uh uh focusing on that and, and less time like getting into kind of the comedy and action that is like the parts that you really enjoy like it's a it's a like i don't i hope i've emphasized like it's a very very funny movie it's it's a lot of time it's a lot of fun um the other one i want to talk about is called uh this one came out at sundance it's called shortcomings um it's directed by randall park who people may have, he's probably most recognizable he played the father in uh fresh off the boat the abc comedy and he's had like a little bit parts in different movies he's he's uh he's popped up in a lot of like judd apatow seth rogan movies um i think he i think he was doing marvel movies and stuff as well has done stuff you know like that um but this one is his first directorial film i don't think he it's based off of a i believe a graphic novel of the same name um but uh he write the script too no he didn't write the script um but yeah it's uh premiered at sundance it stars uh just uh justin men who uh is the for those who have seen after yang is the he's the he's the he plays yang and after yang and is very good in this um and then sherry cola who was in that movie joyride earlier this year and she's she plays his best friend is a lot of fun wait i'm sorry did you say sherry, sherry. Cola? her name her name's sherry cola sherry oh okay all right never mind it's a great name no it's a great name i like it yeah um but pretty much the movie uh ben is like uh he like he went to film school wanted to be a filmmaker it didn't really work out um but it is very much like a uh you know unavailable man um watching criterion movies i was telling grace before we recorded like there's a scene in it where he has this longtime girlfriend and she like comes in the room and he's watching the 400 blows and she's like, Hey, like you're going to come to bed. And he's like, yeah, maybe in a little bit. And she's like, well, you know, like you can come to bed and we don't have to go to sleep at the, you know, necessarily we can, you know, do other stuff. And he was just like, yeah, yeah, no, I'll be here in a little bit. And like, he's like watching the 400 blows and like on the, the table next to him, there's a copy of Tam Popo and Francis Ha. And I was like, damn, like what? a fucking burn <laughs> like um and he has a oh and like you know he has a house poster in this and like in the apartment like um like there's a lot of like i i for you know like this movie the, sounds like it's out to draw blood to honestly be honest. my kind like, of man but like it's really it's it's like really really funny details it's less like it's like you know he's like name drop either there's some name dropping of directors and stuff like that but it also just has like really nice details that you're like yeah like everybody knows who this person is has run into this person before um and it's really funny about that like uh i do like the different movies he's watching though at one point he's watching ozu's good morning and like i was with a friend and i was like i love that movie it is a great movie (laughs) it doesn't honestly it's not a film bro movie though i'm like that's fine like that's an okay movie um but anyway so he yeah so he has this longtime girlfriend she works at a local asian american film festival um clearly like like i said he's like he he's a he's wanting to be a filmmaker um is like really like not doing anything with that he his day job is like managing an art house movie theater in berkeley california and his girlfriend kind of seems to be getting tired of his he's just very he's very negative like the first time you meet him 
they're at her film festival and it's you the first thing that you see is this movie within a movie that stars uh stephanie hugh from um everything everywhere all at once and robbie chang uh, the comedian and it's like it seems like it's kind of like a riff off of crazy rich asians and so it's kind of like this blockbustery romance movie with these two asian leads and um like the movie ends and all the people in the theater cheer and then you see ben the the main character and he's just like sitting there just like fuck <laughs> and then uh like they go into the lobby and everybody's all excited about it and he's just kind of like he's like playing nice and then he gets he le- they le- he leaves with his girlfriend she's like what do you think of it and he was just like yeah that was awful and then they have this uh whole discussion about like um you know like the movie like the movie she, like her point is that the movie is good because it like is this this representation and so as you know for him like that like the movies like this needs to be successful with asian leads so that then he can kind of make the movies that he wants to because you gotta like capture this like wider audience and i'm just and like at that point i'm just like oh my god like i've had i've had conversations like that in this goddamn podcast i mean i was about to say are you sure you didn't just watch a, a cinematary youtube i kind of felt like it was like like at the beginning i was just like oh my god like uh, I was like, I just feel, I feel like we're like in an episode of Cemetery right now. Like that, this guy honestly could have, like, if he wants to join the pod, he would fit in. Except I think that we're much nicer people than he is, because he really fucked up. Because his girlfriend is very attractive and seems really nice, and he's an asshole to her, and I didn't understand that. Um, Zach is gonna scoop her up. I scoop her the hell up. Let me tell I you. I heard you like film. Bo- I feel, I heard you like film boys, baby. There you go. I'm here for you. you. Go, let's go watch Good Morning and. Uh, watch some farting kids with um anyway so then she gets an internship working at a film festival in new york and so she's kind of like hey like let's put a pause on things and i'm gonna go to new york for three months and um a lot of time that he outside of like working he eats um he, he like goes and hangs out with his um his best friend alice who's played by sherry cola um who is a who's this uh who's a lesbian and a grad student and they just kind of have like very similar like their their sense of humor is very similar she's also kind of like um you know kind of has like this negative crass sense of humor as well um and the rest of the movie is just kind of him dealing like trying to kind of like figure out it, it's very it, feel, it feels like the the I think you should leave sketch, like figure out what you do type thing. He like is kind of feeling like, Oh, like I'm going to go date somebody else because she, you know, she's just not getting me. She's, you know, for whatever reason, she's just, it's, it's her, it's her fault type situation. And like fail, like he like has this like kind of, kind of obsession with blonde white women, which, um, is interesting. And it kind of comes into play later, but, uh, he like tries to date this girl who, um, is working at the theater with him. And that kind of falls apart. That's also kind of a funny character because she's like this early twenties experiment, uh, experimental artist. And like, she has like this thing that she's working on where she like takes pictures every morning after she go after she pees. And she's like, uh, she's like, it's going to be like this experience art type thing. And he's just like, Oh, that's, you're insane. She's like, what? And he's like, oh, nothing. This is incredible. It's about consumerism or something, you know. Uh, and then there's another girl that he meets at a party. And, like, they date for a little while. But then she's kind of like, yeah, like, um, my, you know, I'm going to go back to the person I was with. Like, we were able to kind of work things out. And he, like, blows up at her. And so it's an interesting movie because he kind of, he, he doesn't kind of, he sucks the entire time. He fucking sucks the entire time. 
Um, and like, you know, he's kind of stagnated while even his friend Alice, who you meet and she's kind of, she feels like very much like akin with like his, his whole, his whole life starts, you know, she finds somebody to start to kind of grow out of the, the, the kind of stuckness that she's in. And so he's just somebody who's stuck, who won't acknowledge that he's stuck and, that just kind of erupts into different outbursts at different people. And that's a lot of the movie. Um, I, I thought it was, I thought it was good though. I thought, you know, he is just kind of a, he's, he's a very frustrating character, but I mean, I think Justin Min does a great job with it. I think I, the beginning of the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, I think are the, are the strongest because he's, he's a jerk, but they're like, they're able to kind of work it in as like a very, like it's very like a lot of the bits where he's being a jerk are also very funny and like it would have been like I would have like been like yeah like if you could have kept that going for the most of the film so you're kind of like he's an asshole but I am like laughing at this only to like pull the rug out and then he's just like he's just an asshole and he's not funny because they definitely do that I, I just felt like they don't the the kind of real real strong comedy of it kind of uh, I think evaporates pretty early on um the Alice character though is consistently funny throughout. She, I feel like she could have been given kind of a little bit more to do. She's whenever she shows up is, is easily like kind of scene stealing the whole thing. But, um, again, like first time director, I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty solid. Um, it's, it's well shot. It, it does, like, I think he, he does some interesting stuff with the camera, just in, like how he utilizes some close ups and some shot reverse shots and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 a, it's it's very much like a Sundance movie. But I think it kind of it has some interesting things to say. I think it's he he definitely, I'll say like he doesn't really like it ends and he doesn't really like kind of get vindicated or, you know, he's very much left in like a, you know, you're it seems like you're trying you're starting to acknowledge that you need to change, but it's definitely not immediately happening. And you you know, there's kind of a long journey ahead. Um, but I think it's fun. I think the performers are all, all really strong. Um, it is, it is, you know, frequently pretty funny. Like they, they don't get enough scenes, but like they have two, the two characters who are like, um, the concession stand workers at the movie theater that he works at, you know, in the handful of scenes they get are pretty funny. Um, but, uh, overall I thought, you know, I thought pretty solid. This is one, you know, it's kind of one of those small, like I, I see it popping up on like a Hulu or something eventually. And it's uh, it's, it's a good little 90 minute comedy. Good to see. So shortcomings, um, thumbs up coming soon. It's here. So, oh. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go ahead. Here it is. I'm going to go ahead and toss it over to Michael and we'll talk about something starkly more serious than anything I've talked about so far. Yeah. Speaking of shortcomings, um, have you thought about <laughs> the shortcomings of us inventing nuclear weapons? Um, you probably have because we just talked about uh, Oppenheimer last week or two weeks ago, whenever that was. And uh, if you have the Criterion channel, which I recently got for my birthday, thanks, Rebecca. Um, I yeah. Um, Shout out, Rebecca. You will have this documentary pushed on you by the Criterion channel, which is called... Uh, the Day After Trinity, and it's a 1981 documentary um, that is, like, I kid you not, like, the documentary form of uh, the first two-thirds of the Nolan Oppenheimer, like, beat for beat, really, uh, except without, like, the time jumping. Uh, it doesn't really have a lot of the, like, um, McCarthy-Strauss stuff. It touches on that at the very end, but otherwise, like, 
all of the information that is in this documentary, with a few exceptions, are in, is in the Nolan film. And I know that that's ostensibly based on a book, uh, American Prometheus, but I have a hard time imagining Nolan did not watch this movie. Um, but it's good. Um, what's kind of cool about it is because they made it in 1981, a lot of the people who were involved with the Manhattan Project were still alive. Um, not Oppenheimer himself, but like Oppenheimer's brother is in this uh, and a whole bunch of other people you'll recognize either from history or from just the, the movie Oppenheimer. So for instance, uh, the um, Chevalier of the uh, Chevalier incident, like that friend of his um, that they that watches his kid for a while in the movie. He's in this movie interviewed. Um, like I said, his, I like that. I like Chevalier from the Chevalier incident. I don't know how to pronounce <laughs> his first name. It's H A A K O N. Hakan, Hakan. I don't know. Um, also, um, well, I mean, just like a whole bunch of people. So, like, what's the interesting thing? I think that this documentary does is allow you to actually see these people who worked on the Manhattan Project reflecting over the legacy of the Manhattan Project. And so you have a lot of the stuff, like I said, that's conveyed in the movie. Like they talk about Oppenheimer's involvement with like campus organizing and left, like kind of his dalliance with left-wing politics. Um, they talk about his, um, like the, the kind of like atmosphere in Los Alamos and like, which is apparently like a big, big party atmosphere. There's this one anecdote this one dude says where it's like, they wouldn't let us have alcohol uh, to spike the punch. And so we used like lab alcohol, which is 200 proof. Um, and uh, like, so like then they, they talk kind of about that. And then like, you know, obviously the Trinity test happens and, you know, very sh in short work, the, the U.S. government bombs, um, you know, Japan twice. Um, and immediately uh, the, this is about, that's about halfway through the documentary. I mean, immediately the tone of the documentary just becomes extraordinarily grim like as it should but like these people who worked on it like you can just see in their faces like just the immense like psychological toll that um having to reckon with like their role in in a uh, nuclear warfare has uh taken on them and a lot of them have like their kind of like justifications like oh well i just didn't think about um you know, the danger of this. Nobody was thinking about this at the time. There's like some people who like say stuff like that. There's this one dude who is like scary as hell who like actually ha went to um, Hiroshima after the bomb and did like uh, studies on like, you know, well, what is the after effects of the bomb and all this sort of stuff. And he was like, he gives this really chilling little monologue in which he talks about like, yeah, it was kind of weird. No one seemed to care that we were there. Like they were all just, you know, um, at first it was like really empty, you know, where, where the bomb dropped. And then when we started seeing people, they just seemed so dazed. They, they didn't even seem mad at us for having dropped the bomb. And then he like pulls out this window, uh, or not a window. He pulls out this like, uh, like chunk of brick and there's like ash on the brick. And he's like, I, this is from a schoolhouse in Hiroshima. And I like this because you can see the, um, the, the mark that the flash from the bomb left. And so if you had a, like a protractor, uh, you could figure out the angle of, um, you know, the refraction of the light and figure out like at what height the bomb was dropped. Like he just goes on this thing. Um, 
and he's just like sitting there holding it like in his office or whatever this is and then obviously quite a few of them are horrified uh about like the bomb and everything too um and the movie ends with like a video footage of oppenheimer um in his like post-war i don't know where this footage came from but it was like footage from like post-war um like his his like anti-nuclear warfare stage um where he's like an activist for that um and someone asks him like uh well what can be done to stop nuclear war and he's like um nothing can be done now like the only thing uh that could have been done was to stop it the day after trinity and now that it's not it's that's the end so like that's where the that's where the title of the movie comes from um and it's extraordinarily bleak the movie also like near the end of it has um a bunch of footage almost like the end of dr strangelove where all the bombs are going off it's got a lot of test footage of like uh, atomic weapons and then they go to like hydrogen bombs you know because like if you remember from the movie that was a big sticking point for oppenheimer after the war is that we didn't need hydrogen bombs um and so like you see all this test footage and they show you like basically in, in scale like these explosions because like the um the explosion that they show you that was like basically analogous to like what was dropped on hiroshima and nagasaki um you see it and you're like wow that's a big explosion and then all of a sudden you're seeing uh these hydrogen explosions and you can tell the camera is panned miles back. Like it is, you know, you're looking at a field with like the atomic weapon explosion and with the hydrogen bomb, you're like zoomed back and you're seeing like a whole like, um, like a, like an island. Like it's an entire like landmass. Uh, Were those the ones that they tested like in the water, like in the ocean? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it was like the Bikini Atoll or something like that, but it was, yeah. And so it, you can just like tell like they because they show in succession the growing explosions of these weapons and it's really horrifying <laughs> because the first one looks huge you're like dang that's big and then they just keep getting bigger um at any rate i think it's worth watching it's 90 minutes 90 ish minutes maybe it's 100 minutes regardless it's you know breezy compared to oppenheimer in terms of length um but i think that like there's real value in even if you already know all the material from Oppenheimer or history I think there's real value in the fact that these guys were interviewed um like just actually seeing them and like kind of like watching them answer these questions and like kind of squirm in their seats like there's something about that that's not really captured in the Nolan film you know which is like really razor like laser uh focused on Oppenheimer and his subjectivity um so if you have Criterion Channel, it's it's worth a watch. Um, the style itself of the documentary is very much like PBS style. Like, uh, you know, you have interviews and you have stock footage, or not stock footage, archival footage. And there is some cool archival footage, though. They have footage of them as- assembling the bomb for the Trinity test uh, in color, um, which is kind of neat. Um, but, I mean, it feels like you're watching a public television documentary and it was a pub i think that's where it premiered um was in like california public television um but it's worth a watch like it's it's really good um so it's on criterion channel if you're ready to be bummed out by uh the uh, prospect of the annihilation of the human race <laughs> because of some fucking asshole scientists and the american imperialist project so what um 
did it did it change or alter like how you felt about Oppenheimer after? I mean, you mentioned a little bit like the comparison to it, but like what yeah. did, what did you think about like the the narrative film after watching that? It's like I guess what Oppenheimer the Nolan film offers that this doesn't is the kind of like uh, the the character study element, you know, of like Oppenheimer and his psychology, which this movie doesn't exactly capture. Like you get some of it, but I think though, like the kind of ethical stuff that the movie tries to explore regarding like complicity in the Manhattan Project and like whether or not you can pursue theory um, without enabling people to put it into practice. And that's, you know, all those sort of things. Like I think this movie is a much, much, much better engagement with those because it's exclusively engaged in that. It doesn't get kind of like distracted by some of the, uh, some of the stuff that, the Christopher Nolan film does. And I think that like after watching this, I'm less, I already had some, I wasn't like completely in the bag for everything Oppenheimer was doing. But I think like when it comes down to what, um, when it comes down to <laughs> what uh, the. Uh, no, it's, it's just funny. Like I'm, I'm, it's just right. Yeah, I disagree with the book. Yeah, no. yeah, I'm just, I'm we're not with totally you, man. Sold we're, on no, 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 we're with you. That's not controversial. I mean, I mean, the <laughs> no, film. No, yeah. Absolutely. Michael, please, you should say it. That nuclear weapons are dangerous. Uh, no, but like, I'm in the film. Like, Your nuclear, right, hot, nuclear take. hot take. No, I'm at the film. Uh, <laughs> the film Oppenheimer, I wasn't completely on board with like every single thing that it went yeah, yeah, yeah. with. But I think that this movie, the documentary, has made me less. It, it's it's made me feel like that its engagement with like the kind of like more ethical and political issues was, is a lot thinner, I think. I think this documentary is a lot more complex with that the 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 thing i was thinking about with oppenheimer because yeah i've heard i've re- i listened to the film comet podcast talking about it and they had two people who were very like and like really did not like the movie um and like we talked about it a couple weeks ago like the the, the thing i i think that also like th- i feel like this definitely has like some like the documentary probably it definitely has like some meat to it that is left out of the movie just be, just on the basis of like you know heck, carrying along a narrative like you just kind of have to drop some stuff but like the thing i think that also sits with oppenheimer is just and it's what and like it's why christopher nolan's like was the perfect person to do it is because he just really can kind of capture like he like he can put you in the seat for like just to kind of experience you know like a lot of that you know the test and like the aftermaths of the test and like you know like Oppenheimer and the crowd like like just those kind of very like sensory like yeah. movie things like I think I think you know it, it, it done by uh, like others it probably wouldn't have had like that same impact and probably would have been a lesser movie and so yeah like I'm like yeah like there could have been some some more narrative holes filled and things like that like you know you definitely could have filled some stuff out but like just like at the end of the day it also is like a movie and like as a movie it definitely like holds your attention in a way no yeah for sure yeah the in terms of film craft I mean the Nolan's Oppenheimer movie is you know extremely ambitious and energetic and like riveting uh, especially with the material that this documentary covers like it's kind of interesting like I think the strongest material in Oppenheimer the movie is all the stuff at Los Alamos and like that's most of what this movie this documentary covers and if you're just comparing film styles I mean like you know there's no question that Nolan's film is like more cinematic but it uh, I mean Nolan's film is also trying to say something and I think that this movie, 
the documentary says the same thing on a, it, it maybe says a more focused thing than the Nolan movie. And as a result, it feels more layered. And I mean, like, so there's like that kind of ongoing discourse about like, does the, uh, does Oppenheimer, the movie truly reckon with like the kind of damage that the bomb does. And what people are usually meaning by that is there's that scene where they're watching um, footage of the damage from Hiroshima and Nagasaki and you never see what's on the footage, right? All you see is, um, Oppenheimer's very troubled reaction to it, right? And a lot of people have said, like, why are they protecting viewers from, like, the um, damage that the bomb did, you know? Like, shouldn't we see that? And I, there's an argument that that's, that would be exploitative uh, to include it. But I think that one interesting thing that this documentary does that's, like, maybe changed a little bit how I thought of that, because I would be one of the people who would have said, like, it would have been exploitative to have, like, pictures of, you know, burned Japanese people in that movie. Um, but uh, this documentary doesn't really show, it shows a little bit of like the like people who were hurt by the bomb. Like there's a little bit of archival footage of that, but mostly it's these scientists recounting their trip to Japan. Um, and their narrative, I think really says a lot about not just the damage that the bomb did to Japan, but the kind of, uh, the ways in which like the West positioned itself toward that damage. And that's really interesting. And that's something that the movie just kind of glances off of the Oppenheimer movie just kind of glances off of. And um, like, there's just stuff like that where it's, you know, the same material and a lot of times the very same facts, but the way that it's presented is in a way that feels a lot more rigorous. And again, like that's not the only thing to get out of the movie is ethics and, politics you know that's not everything that Oppenheimer the Nolan movie is doing and it's got got stuff to offer besides that but um I think this do- this documentary is probably best used as like a companion to the Nolan film yeah. rather than like a replacement of it no, that's I mean I think that's fair um I think that's I've been meaning to watch it I, I think I might see Oppenheimer a second time and then I was gonna maybe go through that in a couple um I definitely want to watch like something like uh, Hiroshima, Mon Amour, or um, I forgot what the title is, but Kurosawa made a movie that's like directly reckoning with the aftermath of the bomb drops and stuff like that. So a lot of those are actually on um, Criterion Channel also. There's also a YouTube video that I'm only bringing up because A, um, I think we had something by this YouTuber when we did our YouTube uh, cinema series but B it's like a feature length it's like a two hour YouTube video um, by the YouTuber Sean which basically walks through um, like a top to bottom like debunking the idea that like dropping the bomb was anything other than like uh, like a kind of uh, a, an act against the Soviet Union basically you know like uh, yeah it was, a, it was a dick measuring thing. Was, like, let's just get it down to its base. It was 100% like the United States showing, <laughs> yeah. look, anyone else who wants to go to war with us, look what we just did to this guy. You know that? So anyway, like, but it goes through, like, a lot of archival data um, and, you know, going back to, like, actual documents, like, kind of mapping the logic that at the time was used to justify dropping the bomb. And, again, that's, like, a really good... Uh, like very academic and pretty dry to be honest but like very like you know if you're interested in this sort of stuff that's another good companion to Oppenheimer because a lot of the points get brought up in Oppenheimer 
again, in a very brief way. And if you're interested in like burrowing in, it's there. Cool. Now I'm definitely hoping to watch that at some point, get in the mood for it, you know? Yeah. You know, who's not in the mood to watch stuff about the Manhattan Project? I mean, I don't know. I woke up and watched the movie we're, at the, we're about to talk about in part two. I woke up, you know, and watched that starting at like 930 this morning. It was a, it was an interesting watch, you know, to have like my coffee and some breakfast and be watching that. But, you know, we'll get into that in a little bit. There are 100% fewer samurai fights in the day after Trinity. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure there were. Um, right. Exactly. On that note, let's we'll, we'll, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back talking about some samurai fights in part two with Harakiri after this. Two of episode 456 of Cinematary. In this part, we're going to be continuing our Young Critics Watch Old Movie series with 1962's Harakiri. Directed by Masaka Kobayashi from a script by Shinobu Hashimoto, the film stars Tatsuya Nakade, uh, Shima Iwashida, Akira Ishihama, and Tetsuro Tamba. Aging samurai Hanshiro Sugomo arrives at the home of uh, Kageyu uh, Sato and asks to commit a ritual suicide on the property, which Sato thinks is a ploy to gain pity and a job. Sato th- uh, tells Sugumo of another samurai uh, who threatened suicide as a stratagem, only to be forced to follow through on the task. When Sugomo reveals that that samurai was his son-in-law, the disclosure sets off a fierce conflict. Um, when asked about the theme of his film, Kobayashi said, quote, all of my pictures are concerned with resisting an entrenched, entrenched power. That's what Harakiri is about, uh, of course, and rebellion as well. I suppose it's always, it's, I've always challenged authority. Although Kobayashi grew up in a quiet fishing village and went to a uh, reputable university, he he was a born rebel. He spent most of his career criticizing Japanese society, which resulted in censorship and underrated masterpieces like Harakiri. In 1942, Kobayashi was drafted into the Japanese Imperial Imperial Army. He uh, disapproved of their actions, however. In protest of the war effort, he refused to become an officer. This way, his way. This was his way of condemning the military class that dragged Japan into the Pacific War. As such, Kobayashi faced the dangers of war head-on and was taken prisoner towards the end of World War II. After that, he spent a year in a detention camp. Fortunately, he survived to criticize Japanese society after the war. Um, in the post-war years, Kobayashi was the first director to openly, openly criticize Japanese militarism and the atrocities that occur, occurred in China before World War II. In particular, his film trilogy, The Human Condition, voiced concern about the further course of humankind. Kobayashi's nonconformist attitude was at odds with the Japanese film studios and remained so till the end. In other words, his filmmaking career was an uphill battle. His work was impeccable, though, and Harakiri was the pinnacle of it all. It was Kobayashi's first attempt at the genre, uh, the uh, samurai genre, but the style of Harakiri impacted film fans forever after. Presumably, Kobayashi got the affinity for nature photography from his upbringing in Otaru, a rural seaside Hakai town. Harakiri was characterized by low-paced camera work, shots from above, symmetrical compos- composition, and stark lighting. Uh, 
Uh, at the time, Kobayashi felt that his pursuit of realism had gone as far as possible. He was ready to explore unknown ter- uh, territories. This freed him to take inspiration from theatrical art forms such as kabuki, no theater, and scroll paintings. Kobayashi uh, coupled his inspirations from traditional uh, Japanese art with old-fashioned dialogue-based storytelling. This time around, his inner rebel opposed realistic film conventions, which was further uh, strengthened by the traditional tunes of Biwa. Harakiri was set in in 1630, 40 years before the Meiji Restoration in 1868, Um, and the downfall of the... That would be be 1768. Anyway, and the the downfall of the uh, Takagawa Shogunate. Uh, Kobayashi chose the 1630s to emphasize that the Japanese system was corrupt before Tokugawa took power. Japan was peaceful in the 1630s. The, ta- the need for samurais declined long before the Meiji Restoration. Kobayashi's condemnation of the Iyi clan symbolized something more significant. It voiced opposition against something rotten in the empire of Japan. Something vile stunk up Japanese society before the uh, Tokugawa shogunate, and Kobayashi saw it in post-war Japan society as well. His finger pointed at unquestioning submission, strict hierarchies and financial cliques built on corrupt feudalist values um, the new york times in 1964 said another grizzled grumpy and growling unemployed samurai of the sort that we've seen prowling around the premises in any number of post-war japanese costume films is the hero of harakiri the first uh shambara sword fighting film directed by Masa- masaki kobayashi but this samurai is different from most of the old warriors we've seen stomping their feet and swishing their swords in the particular type of japanese picture that is comparable to the american western film Possibly, there is some significance in this drama that pertains to recent years. Some comment on the some comment on the antiquated rituals and false heroics of a militaristic chest. If so, it is vague and mushy. Mainly impressed about the film are the mainly impressive about the film are these strange plastic rhythms that move in it and the exquisitely stark photography. Mr. Kobayashi does superb things with architectural composition, moving forms, and occasionally turbulent gyrations of struggling figures in the cinemascope screen, uh, size screen. He achieves a sort of mi- visual mesmeration that is suitable to the curious nightmare mood, and he uses his actors like weird puppets in this tensely drawn mise-en-scene. You may not get much satisfaction from the tortured human drama in this film, but you should get an eyeful of uh, get an eyeful graphic exercise. Um, I don't think Boz. I'm always struck by the uh, the amount of times that the New York Times is just off. Yeah, Bo- well, no, it's Bosley Crowther. He's a fucking terrible. He's a fucking terrible film critic. Is it the same guy each time. Yeah, for the Jeez. most part, Bosley Crowther. Like he's just fucking terrible. Like he's just not a good film critic. That's well, like that. I'm mean, just gonna make that stand. He's just not. Bosley Crowther is a terrible film critic. This man's still alive. This is a Henry Kissinger situation. I don't think so. Hope, hopefully he's he's right. dead. All hopefully right. he's dead in the ground clutching the jazz singer or some shit. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, anyway, <laughs> let's jump in the. Let's jump to Harakiri. Um, yeah, Grace, I'm gonna start with you because you were talking a little bit before uh, we turn on the mic about um, like you've seen a number of samurai films, but it's been a long time, and so this one was kind of you jumping back in, which is a, a very interesting one to jump back in with. So, yes. So, um, I have definitely been um, exposed to, I have memories seeing um, Hidden Fortress, Seven Samurais, and uh, Hojimbo. Um, but when I signed up for this episode, I knew immediately, I was like, okay, I want to watch a samurai movie, and then I want to watch this. So that's what I was telling you. I watched uh, Lone Wolf and Cub, Sword of Vengeance, because it's on HBO Max. It's free. Let's watch a samurai movie. I, I don't, I'm not super familiar with the conventions. Um, 
the, you know, any of the lore. I'm not familiar with the history. Like, so watching that, um, that came out in 1972, so 10 years after, right? Because this was 62 for Harakiri. Um, so totally different. Um, much more pulpy, much more gory. There's this sort of um, superhuman quality to Ito Onagami that is the lone wolf assassin, um, how he can take on however many men and take them all out thanks to his sword fighting style. Um, and then to go and watch this, and there's um, a more human quality to it. He takes hit, um, Henshiro takes hits, he bleeds, he, um, you know, he can only fight off so many people by himself. He's not, before he's not like a superhero. Yeah, he's not a superhero. He uses his surroundings. He's throwing dirt in the eyes. Um, so, like, he's, he's a scrapper. It was very good. But um, I wish that I would have not done that. I wish that I would have watched this first. Um, I loved this. This was so good. This was so interesting, so sad. Um, it's like a wonderful story. Um, definitely, you know, you, it, it could be approachable as like a period drama. I mean, there's the family struggle. It felt familiar. And then it's action and, and, and samurai blood and guts. Um, so I wish I would have started with this first, but I, this was great. And like how, um, you know, cool to set up the entire genre, the entire convention, and then satirize it. Like, no, this shit sucks. Like the, you know, the, the system it's, well, you go interrupt me. No, you can, um, no, it's, it's interesting. Like also like as a, you know, like, you know, the samurai films are always, it has, it has a comparison with like Western films and things like that. It, so it's kind of interesting as like this, it, it's, it doesn't work necessarily like, you know, with like Westerns, you have like very traditional Westerns, but then you have like John Ford, who is probably like most synonymous with them, then making like almost like anti-Westerns with like the searchers and Liberty Valance and things like that, where he's like commenting back on like his work to, uh, to a large point. Um, even like more modernly, like Scorsese with gangster movies, like, you know, he made it, he, he made all these very like, you know, these are the gangster movies, Goodfellas, Casino, uh, you know, stuff like that. And then is making stuff like the Irishman, which is like kind of like a, you know, revisionist to it, to a degree. Um, and so it's interesting with Kobayashi who like, this is his first, uh, like, it's not like he, he's not somebody like Kurosawa who like had like a long history of samurai movies and then like comes and like makes a, like a kind of an anti samurai movie. Like, it's kind of interesting that, um, he was able to pick up the genre, and like in and make kind of a, a a response to the genre in general, like with his first movie, and with his main character. Yeah, um, Michael, what did you think of the movie? Uh, I thought it was really good. A lot of the insights that I had you <laughs> brought up during your um, intro, but I was like really fascinated by um, the the ways in which it just seems to like be throwing a bomb into like power structures and hierarchies um and i don't know like i love the structure of it like the it, it starts off almost like fable like right like where um the guy just like walks up to the town and he's like 
I'm gonna uh, kill myself here. And like, it's like almost like <laughs> they're like, okay, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just another day. Well, no, what's funny? What um, what's funny is then they flash back to the other guy, because uh, they're like, not one of these again. And like, <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it's almost funny, like uh, how there's been like a rash of people pretending like they were gonna commit suicide so that they could be given money to stop or something. Uh, and I mean, it's obviously not funny because it's like a reflection of like the the kind of like uh, the way that culture is changing and how um, the kind of like hierarchy of like the this kind of um, crumbling social structure has not set people up to like succeed in the next hierarchy that's being established. Like there's, there's like something deeply tragic in that, but it's also just kind of funny. I don't know, like you're. Um, your, your little synopsis talked about how um, the guy, um, the first guy that we flash back to is the son-in-law of the other guy. But we don't find that shit out until like an hour into the movie. And it's like funny by the time you get there uh, when he's like, actually, I knew him. <laughs> and, bum, bum, bum. Yeah, exactly. Like I was like, whoa. Yeah. I can't believe this. Right, I thought exactly. that guy was a fraud. Like, I don't know. So there's something like... Um, there's something very funny and almost like anarchic about it. Like it's in, in a way that's always very fun. Like there's like those types of movies um, where um, the kind of like conceit of the movie is as the movie goes on, it's revealed that like one character knows more than everybody else. And it's always fun to see that kind of like dawning thing happen. Um, but then of course it's like a bummer at the end too. So, you know. Uh, you know, you're talking about like how it's kind of throwing a bomb into conventions. Um, I actually, I had recently rewatched The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance for the first time in a long time. And that's, you know, very much kind of John Ford going, let me just break down all the stuff that like Mike, I built my career on for, you know, years and years and years. Um, and this, this felt like a perfect kind of like double feature with that to a degree, because it, it feels very much the same. Like, you know, Liberty Valance is, you know, uh, Grace's friend behind her, John Wayne, you know, is over there. Like, <laughs> like a lot of, a lot of the stuff that he does, uh, we'll you know, he's, him. he's not, you know, he's not he there. a good person. Um, in the, it's, you know, he's very much like in line with like a searcher's character. He's not a good person, but you know, he's able to at least recognize that he's kind of an aging relic of a time that like is never going to like, you know, while Liberty Valance is like trying to like fight and hold on to like this kind of wild west time like uh tom donovan is very much like like yeah that's that's like it's gone because you know the railroads coming uh modernization is coming like you know that time of us being able to just kind of settle things with guns and fists and stuff like that is just gonna go like it's gonna go away um and it feels and like i felt a lot of that in harakiri where you know uh sugomo the uh, hanshiro sugomo is just very much like you know he, he's he's gonna go out in a blaze of like samurai glory like he's but he's also but it's kind of him going like this is just my last like this you know this is all i can give you know as you know we're all about to like be you know become a, a product of a forgotten era right. um well and in fact then the guns come out at the end like yeah yeah like a like a real like oh you're not gonna be able to go out on your your own terms like in fact the new order is gonna is gonna kill you yeah the modernization comes in and it's like 
yeah, we're going to just shoot. They constantly you deny than, him as you know, honor. Like, you know, and it's, and it's also like, honestly, as this, you know, it is a samurai movie, but it does, it def- doesn't really, there's action sequences, but it's not like, you know, it's not, you know, you think of like, you know, the streets in Yojimbo where like the, you know, Kurosawa is showing like the sands kicking up and you like get to watch like a, a whole like battle take place and people, you know, blood shooting everywhere and people, you know, people's, you know, limbs are coming off and stuff. I mean, the, the the actor who plays Hanshiro in this it plays the like shit uh, the shit brother in y- Yojimbo who's like constantly fucking with uh, Toshiro Mifune's character the one who like has the gun tucked away um, and uh, and yeah like you don't really get any you get a couple moments like you have like the fight um, like in the alleyway and then he goes with the guy like out past the graveyard and stuff like you have and then and then like the climax of it you have like a fight and that's probably the most like traditional like this is what you're kind of expecting out of a samurai movie but really up to that point you don't get any like like oh hell yeah like we're about to get into like a giant like battle that's gonna be you know fun it always is like cutting right before like the actual like the the cutting you know the 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 kind of finishing happens it reminded me in that regard of Rashomon, um, not just in the sense of it kind of like undercuts the kind of uh, sensual excitement of like battle, but also because uh, of that like nested like story. Well, it's not really nested, but the way that you flash back to characters telling stories and that like changes your perspective on like the other stories um, that have been told already, um, which I think is is interesting. And in doing so, it presents this almost this really bleak and almost nihilistic understanding of like the human experience, right? Like um, you're always like like as the movie ends, it's like you're always going to be like under the thumb of the you know people who don't care about you, and their decisions that they make are going to have collateral damage that you like will be affected by but doesn't they don't care about at all you know because like the entire reason that um the first guy in the flashback comes is that like his his town has been like like the the governor the governing system of his town has been abolished right like and so there's just like social disarray and he comes to the 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 town um and they clearly like don't care at all they're like oh there's been so many of you guys like who are just like poor and pretending to commit suicide like we're just gonna force you we to have die. to set an example yeah exactly it's yeah. like exactly we have to establish the new order right. now and they don't, like this is how we they, deal with this they don't care about the extent to which that new order is creating this onslaught of people trying to commit ritual suicide um they just simply want to be in control. And it is really interesting to think about that in the context of like a post World War II, like, um, like kind of geopolitic, because that's kind of, I mean, that's any time period, but that's certainly the time period after World War II, you know, where there's this huge sea change in like who are the major players in global politics and they the ways that like the united states and the ussr in particular act have all sorts of unintended or sometimes intended consequences on other nations and they kind of just don't care you know and 
I don't know. It's, I don't know if specifically they were thinking, you know, the filmmakers were thinking about that. No, I think so. But, Cause I mean, that's the, like, like in the research I was doing, like he was very, he was very, Kobayashi was very conscious of that and like used a lot of, which I, I, is making me really want to like go back and watch a number of his movies. Cause he's very conscious of that and is using, um, you know, the Japanese costume, costume drama to like, you know, this, 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 this nostalgia for a past era in order, like he's using that construct to speak to, um, you know, what's happening at the, you know, in the, in modern times for him, you know, in the, in the fifties and sixties, uh, in Japan as they're coming out of the, you know, we talked about it in part one, but like the desolation of the end of world war two and becoming, you know, his, his whole thing is, you know, rather than fixing, you know, we weren't right before that the, the war started, he, you know, his point is like, yeah, we were doing horrible, horrendous thing, heinous things to China and Korea and other places. And then we got into world war two and the U S bombed us. And now we're like, you know, shooken from it, but we should take, you know, the lesson we should take is like, we should be, we should learn and be better from the mistakes we made before. And his thing is like, no, you're just, you're using the new geopolitical structure and building up the same shit, but in a different fashion. And he's like, yeah, that's wrong. <laughs> have you seen, have either of y'all seen the human condition? No, that's but like I, his film. That's about like contemporary, like militarized Japan, right? Yeah. That's like the, it's like, what is it? It's like seven, eight hours. It's, it's, it's like really three parts. Long. I've never seen it. But I'm I just think, curious what that movie's like. It's on it's on Criterion Channel. I've been I th- I'm I'm debating about like you know, but it seems like you can break it into three. Like there's three specific parts to it, so I think you can break it up in the parts. But I was I was thinking about watching that because I'm sure it's it's probably just from watching this movie, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Because the only other movie of his that I've seen is Quaidon, which is like a horror anthology. And I don't remember, it's been a couple years since I saw it. I don't remember it having those like political overtones like this one does, or I'm assuming the human condition does. But maybe I just need to go rewatch it. Um, Grace, what did you think of kind of the the main, the, the you know, this main character and kind of how he's, his, you know, his takedown of the, of the system? Uh, deeply satisfying um, and also... Um, super upsetting he's denied his samurai blaze of glory at every turn he's the only one left alive after you know series of unfortunate events and he is the only one that's left to tell the story of his family and then at the end the their history is is erased their existence is gone history is not it seems like you know history isn't really written by the victor it's by who stays alive um you know who's still standing and it's the yi yi clan or it's them they are the ones yeah (laughs) Yeah, and and that was so cool i mean him you know he picks up the armor it's everything that they stand for it's who they pledge their allegiance to it's body armor it's meant to protect and it does protect him they don't charge him they you know they put down your swords we can't attack him we can't he's got the armor he's holding up this system that we place so much belief and our faith in and pledge our allegiance to he's holding it up and he you know throws it down he throws it asunder and breaks it up and 
you know, this is what I think of your system, smash. And then the guns come out and it's, it felt so cowardly because it's like, you guys couldn't even do the thing that you're supposed to do. You guys couldn't even sword fight this man to the death. And you rely on guns. You rely on weapon on a different type of weapon in a time of peace. Right. So my cats are going crazy right now. They got zoomies. <laughs> Sorry. They're hyped up. There's, they're my Ronin. They're my, they're my Wusha warriors. Like they're, you know, they're always a part of this, but it's, um, you know, in a, the transition from wartime to peacetime, the destabilization, he's a wartime relic. He's a wartime weapon. And in times of peace, what do we use as our enforcer guns? Um, that was so lame. It was so upsetting, but it was so, Oh, just like, I, I like I, you know, this whole thing is young critics watch as a, you know, I, you know, as a young critic, a young 27 year old teenage critic, um, you know, all I can think of like, wow, this is amazing. You know, the, the, the art and, 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 um, you know, storytelling that's just on the other side of the world on the other side of. Uh, you know subtitles black and white like you know this is there's so much good stories and art out there um you just can't be afraid don't let the black and white turn you off don't let the foreign film turn you off from it but I always find myself like really um lost in foreign films not like lost as in like confused but I just lose my all sense of myself because I really have to I can't look away I'll, I'll miss something. I, I feel like, you know, in a, in a American or Western feature, uh, whatever, I can hear it, but you know, you have to, you can't just, you have to listen, you have to read it, you have to watch and take it all in and just got this overwhelming sense of like, what a, what a movie. Yeah. I want to come to the back, back to that in a second, but uh, Grace reminded me of one thing that I wanted to talk about just in terms of the story is in, in, in like the kind of com- comments on contemporary Japan, but you also have that whole, the, the whole through line that kind of comes, uh, comes together, up, you know, where they're not going to, you know, the, the, it happens at the very end where the leader of the clan uh, is is not gonna like he's like the word is not gonna get out like what happened we're gonna be like oh he like did what you know he committed harakiri like he wanted to and that was that and these other uh, everybody else was sick the other the other samurai they performed harakiri like they're sick too we don't know what happened like just like I thought that that was also like apt like the 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 let's 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 develop the narrative that we need to tell about this because we can't like tell we can't say what actually happened since it is a since the narrative is very disrupting to the social order but then like at the end the servants are like cleaning everything up and they're like looking at the the like head knots that have been taken that have been cut off right like there's something um i don't know like there's something really interesting and almost profound about that too you know where like you know oh like there's official narratives but the people who are like you know the laborers are the people who actually can know the truth because the the leaders themselves are not going to clean up all the evidence right like and so by doing that like there's there's cracks in that official narrative i don't know i thought that was kind of cool they're alive. They're, I just humiliated them. Take that. Oh my gosh, that was so good. That was, 
<laughs> because yeah, the whole time they're he's like, he's been sick oh, for a while. Sick. Like, and are you sure about that? Everyone's kind of like, okay. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Like, right. He's sick too. I like, I like the, the the third. No, but he says the third it, guy. And he's just as like, he kept he kept naming minute. people. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like no, like sidebar. Huh? You really. You know these people by name. How do you know them? You know, why these three people? That was so fascinating. You know, it's just these little, like, hints at, um, you know, him, like, slowly revealing his hand. Um, yeah. It, uh, you know, you mentioned Michael earlier. You mentioned Rashomon. This one, it's it's very different in time, in terms of structure, but in terms of kind of, like, bouncing between, like, the past and the present, um, it, like, the structure of the narrative reminded me a lot of Rashomon, where, like, you know, stuff would be, you know, you would kind of, the narrative would be flowing along, and you're like, I think I get, I, you know, I think we fig- we kind of figured it out, It's and then something else would be thrown in because of a, a different perspective or this information that was left out before that then is added to it um it reminded me a lot of that movie um but yeah so going back to what grace was saying just in terms of like um you know watching watching these narratives from like from non you know for of non-western movies it also just um this is one that I've seen a lot like listed in in like the classics and I think it's you know we talk about this in just about every young critics uh movie that we do but this one you know this it's just another example of like i think um you know this is something that i was thinking about when people were talking about the joke the joke in barbie about like the godfather about you know you know like it, it's it's the godfather is very very much like one of those movies that you know it has all of this this stuff this narrative around it you know and like you watch like the actual movie and then it's a good you know you're like yeah like i understand why it like has this you can debate whether you feel like it's you know where it ranks in terms of you know great movies but you're like it's worthy of like the discussion it's you know it's the same with like when they get into it with like about like citizen kane and stuff like that but like um this one like um i don't know like it was another it was another realization like while watching this is just like you know, I think I think sometimes we don't approach like the the classics that we see because we're just like you know we've either seen so many references to them and other things and we kind of feel like we know, but then like you know I, I think Rashomon's a good example of that. So many th- so many movies have kind of ripped off Rashomon ever since it came out, but like this one, it's just like a reminder of like like this. I understand why this is a classic. Like this is like like there's a reason. It's so good. Like the use. Um, I don't think we talked about it, but the use of like how how Kobayashi like uses space in this movie, the that house where the the E clan is like just those you said oak, the theatricality like, you, and stagecraft and like yeah, that yeah. house is so cool. Well, it's getting torn apart. It's like it's this it's this vast it's this vast house with like all this beauty and like the rooms and it, but it's also just empty. Like the whole thing feels empty, and so it's also again it's like another it's just another layer to the commentary of just like you know you have like this decadence and this facade of like you know royalty and the samurai the Ronin era and all this stuff, but like now you're left in peace times and it's just fucking empty there's nothing there and so like he's rolling through the house and i think every room in that house is empty except for the room with the damn armor in it you know and so it like makes that whole climax sequence even more effective because you're just like is this yeah like system this institution well it's it's just yeah you're just kind of upholding like what are you upholding now like it's just you have this empty house yeah the the house comparisons like from that one to the you know what they lived in and the time of 
in the flashback to the crappy little hut that they had to move to to like the little bit bigger house that they lived in as a family but it's still pretty bare and you can see through like there's not a lot of walls up you can see everything I thought that that was interesting like everything in the clan house was like sectioned and partitioned and you have to find your way through but but no like like watching this it's a reminder like you know you watch you'll watch some of the classics especially the ones that you haven't got to and more often than not i feel like you'll watch it and you'll kind of go yeah i understand why this is i understand why this kind of like gets what you know whatever praise or whatever recognition as uh, you know i think a lot of times we want to uh you know you definitely want to like reevaluate and reexamine the canon, but with some of them, you know, especially something like this, like you you rewatching, like yeah, like this still has like, this still has uh, intrinsic value not only on a stylistic, cinematic level, um, but also like I think that narratively it speaks, you know, like that's something you know, some of the, you know, the early the earlier ones we watched, like something like the jazz singer, like we got into it like. You know, are the are the technical innovations and the cinematic innovations that you know it's heralded for like like does that have merit? And then like does the narrative still speak? And like you know you can kind of debate that. But I'm like with this one, I can see why this is a classic because I think all of that stuff still holds up and is still as powerful in in 2023 as it was on a cinematic and narrative level in 1962. Yeah, definitely. Have any of y'all seen um, this movie was remade in like, like, like ten years ago maybe? Yeah, Takashi Miike made it. It kept popping yeah. up. I kept trying to stream Harakiri, and it's like Harakiri, Death of a Thief, or whatever. And it's like, leave me alone. <laughs> I want the real deal. I do kind of like, want to watch the Takashi Miike yeah, remake. He's like not a, he's not just some sort of like fly by night dude. No, like he's yeah. No, honestly, yeah. I, I will probably see if I can watch that because yeah, like Takashi Miike, you're like, all right, like that sounds. There's gonna be some blood in that one. <laughs> Although I would say, like this, this the original was way bloodier than I thought. Like the scene where the guy has to actually, oh, yeah, with kill the himself, bamboo, like gr- it was hard gnarly, to watch. Like really and, gross. And the guy's just like, finish it. And loud. Yeah, it was very loud. A lot of fluids. Turns out, you know, disemboweling yourself is not not very pleasant. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, any any final thoughts? Any any lingering thoughts on uh, Harakiri before we wrap up? Oh, um, I remember how um, in uh, last week's episode I showed you guys like when I was looking up Harakiri, like one of the Google searches is like most commonly associated with or searched with. It's like, why is Harakiri so good? Do you guys think we answered yeah, that? I, I yeah. understood I why. Think so. after yeah. Watching. <laughs> yeah, we know why it's so good. So you guys should go out. And you should watch and, and then fill out the you Google. Know, you'll agree. We should go it and respond so to the Google searches and be like, yeah, this is why. Yeah, why is Harakiri like so good? Because go listen to Cinematary's we'll, podcast. We'll flex yeah. some SEO and we'll work. What, why is Harakiri so good in the SEO of this podcast? So then maybe when they search that, they'll just find this episode. In the, That's it. Yeah. There we go. Um, so we don't even need to, you know, commit seppuku to get money. <laughs> we to just, get views. Uh, manipulate SEO. That's the that's the that's the that's the nature of the game, yeah. Um, 
Well, cool. Well, uh, that'll wrap up this episode. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cinematary on Twitter and Instagram at handle at cinematary and on letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash cinematary where we will talk about, or we list all the episodes or all the episodes, all the movies that we talk about in this episode, but also all the episodes because we have those too. Um, if you'd like to support the show, um, you know, with or without us performing seppuku, uh, you can go to patreon.com slash cinematary. Thank you so much to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi, and Tyler Chandler. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Um, next week or next episode, we're going to, we're going to have one. We're going to do one. And that is, we're going to uh, take the dive into Sallow or the 120 oh God, days of Sodom. <laughs> Oh my and uh, it's 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 Michael, it's you, me, and Andrew. So uh, what a group yeah. to experience salad together. That's right. Um, That's what this podcast is made I for. I can choose what? my battles. I no, couldn't do it. Jealous of Grace. No, I, <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do it. I said no. Catch you on the I next one, guys. You got this. Who put it on this time? But it's been in the. It has been a few years in a row. I'm honestly surprised, like that, it wasn't voted because that seems like a perfect movie. Like if somebody's saying, like that's that's a perfect, like you know, haha, fuck you, vote. So that's how I felt this time. Oh yeah. But here we are. So that's you know, get ready for that, folks. Um, until then, thanks y'all for listening. We'll see you next episode.